Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Our guest today is Dr. Rachel Simmons, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. And our topic, a follow-up to Dr. Simmons' recent newsletter issue, is New Advances in Art. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Vive Healthcare. Learning objectives for this audio program include recognize risk factors for the development of chronic kidney disease in patients on art, summarize the benefits, risks, and rationale for switching from tenofovir fumarate TDF, to tenofovir alafenamide in well-controlled and treatment-experienced patients, and discuss novel long-acting therapies for HIV. Dr. Simmons has disclosed that she has received honoraria from the American Board of Internal Medicine, BMJ, and Dynamed. Also, that her immediate family has stock options with Eli Lilly and Company. Dr. Simmons has further indicated that except as noted specifically within this discussion, there will be no references to the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products in today's program. Dr. Rachel Simmons, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. In your newsletter issue, Dr. Simmons, you reviewed the results of recent studies that may improve antiretroviral therapy for a number of HIV-infected patient subgroups. What I'd like us to do today is translate some of that information into clinical practice. Uh, So if you would, please, doctor, start us out with a patient scenario. So our first patient is a 50-year-old man with HIV on tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate, or TDF, M-tricytabine plus boosted adazanavir, who presents for HIV follow-up. He would like to reduce the number of pills he takes to one if possible, and his brother also recently developed kidney problems related to diabetes, and the patient would like to know about his risk factors for kidney problems. His past medical history includes HIV. His exposure was remote injection drug use. He was diagnosed about 11 years ago when he presented with pneumocystis pneumonia, and his CD4 count was 67. His other medical condition is hypertension. His medications are TDFM tricytamine, plus ritonavir-boosted adazanavir, and lisinopril. He quit smoking last year, and his physical exam is notable for a blood pressure of 122 over 78 and is otherwise normal. Labs include a creatinine of 1.1 and an estimated GFR of 74 milliliters per minute, and there is no proteinuria on urinalysis. His concern about his potential for developing kidney disease, how would you estimate his risk? Well, we know that patients who are HIV positive have a higher risk of developing chronic kidney disease in the general population, and that's probably due to a number of factors, both related to the virus and related to medications. So a group looked at a longitudinal cohort study to see what were predictors of risk for chronic kidney disease, and they came up with several things. They used the cohort study, the data collection on adverse events of anti-HIV drugs, or the DAD study, which is a large prospective study of HIV-positive patients in Europe, the United States, and Australia. And in their cohort, they looked at almost 18,000 individuals with more than three GFR measurements and who had normal renal function at enrollment with an estimated GFR of greater than 60. So these patients also had no history of tenofovir, disoproxyl fumarate use, or adazanavir, or any boosted PI use prior to enrollment in this cohort. So it's a little bit different than our patient, but I still think their results are quite helpful. And in this study, the cohort that they looked at, 73% of the patients that were studied were men, and race was unknown for about 44% of them. So they found the following non-HIV and HIV-related characteristics were noted to be significant predictors of chronic kidney disease. The first was increasing age, followed by female gender, hepatitis C co-infection, prior cardiovascular disease, lower EGFR at baseline, 
hypertension, diabetes, and intravenous drug use as compared to other HIV exposure groups, and lastly, a lower Nader CD4 count, which was less than 200. The study couldn't comment on the known association of race in regard to risk for chronic kidney disease because race was unknown in such a significant proportion of individuals. And this database also contained no information about proteinuria, so couldn't comment about that as a risk factor for chronic kidney disease. And the risk factors that they identified were also similar to those discussed in the clinical practice guideline for the management of chronic kidney disease in patients with HIV that was published in 2014 by Lucas and colleagues. This recent investigation using the data from the DAD study, was that Mowcroft at all, which you reviewed in your newsletter issue? That's correct. And they developed a clinical tool for assessing the risk of chronic kidney disease. Uh, Tell us a little more about that, if you would, please. So using this cohort, the authors then went on to develop a clinical risk tool to predict the possibility of developing chronic kidney disease in the next five years. And in the risk tool, points were given for patients for their age, female gender, intravenous drug use as their HIV exposure group, hepatitis C co-infection, a baseline GFR of greater than 70, a Nader CD4 count of less than 200, and a prior history of hypertension or cardiovascular disease or diabetes. And using this risk model, the individuals were determined to have either a low, a medium, or high risk of developing CKD. And then the chance of developing CKD over the next five years really went up quite significantly based on your risk group. So it was about 1 in 400 in the low-risk group and went up all the way to 1 in 6 had a risk of developing CKD in the high-risk group. And the investigators then went on to look at the effect of starting different antiretroviral agents in the different risk groups. And they found that starting TDS or ritonavir-boosted atazanavir or any other boosted protease inhibitor aside from laponavir-ritonavir was equivalent to increasing the risk score by about two points. And then that led the authors to determine the number needed to harm or the number needed to be started on a particular antiretroviral medication for one additional person to get chronic kidney disease over the next five years. And they found that in the highest risk group, the number needed to harm was nine when starting a medication like TDF or atazanavir with ritonavir. And fortunately, this tool is available online for practitioners to use for their own patients. And for the current patient that we're discussing, If we apply the clinical risk predictor to him, it's estimated that the risk of CKD would be about 7% over the next five years. Now, this patient is already on tenofovir, dysproxyl fumarate, and ritonavir-boosted atazanavir, and each of those would increase the risk to about 11% over the next five years. And Mocroft and colleagues did an additional separate analysis where they looked at individuals in the DAD cohort with normal renal function at baseline And they noted that there was a cumulative risk of CKD with years of exposure to TDF or ritonavir-boosted atazanavir. And in their multivariate analysis, they noted approximately a two-fold increase in chronic kidney disease after five years of exposure to either TDF or ritonavir-boosted atazanavir. So this would be important information that I would share with this patient given his concern about chronic kidney disease. Beyond sharing that information with the patient, how would you monitor his actual renal function? What do the recommendations say? So for all patients who are infected with HIV, it's recommended they have regular monitoring of their renal function. And what that means is that they have a basic chemistry where you check the creatinine and are able to estimate the GFR at enrollment into care when antiretroviral therapy is initiated or modified, and then at least every six months when patients are on a stable regimen. The other parameter that we follow is a urinalysis. And the urinalysis is recommended again at entry into care and then at least annually, and then more often for patients who are at risk of renal disease. So for patients who are on either tenofovir elephantamide or TAF or TDF, it's recommended that that's checked every six months. 
Some experts also recommend following uh, quantitation of either albumin or protein in the urine by checking microalbuminuria or protein to creatinine ratios. And certainly if patients have evidence of proteinuria on urinalysis or urine dipstick, it's recommended to quantify that further with either uh, microalbuminuria or a urine protein to creatinine ratio. And given our patient's risk factors for chronic kidney disease and his current antiretroviral regimen, I would recommend checking an estimated GFR at least every six months with the MDRD equation. And I would, in addition, check a urinalysis every six months and measure either urine protein to creatinine ratio or a microalbumin. And then I would also work with him to make sure that we're addressing other modifiable risk factors for kidney disease, including making sure we're treating his hypertension to goal, congratulating him on his smoking cessation, and avoiding additional nephrotoxic agents such as long-term NSAID use. This patient, as you presented him, is also looking to reduce his pill burden. There are single-tablet regimens available. Which would you recommend for this patient? So among the currently available single-tablet regimens, one I would consider for this patient would be tenofovir, alafenamide, m-tricytabine, and elvitegravir with cobacystat. The newer single-tablet regimens have ended up swapping out the TDF for tenofovir, alafenamide. Tenofovir alafenamide is a novel prodrug associated with lower plasma levels, and it has a better safety profile compared to TDF, and we'll be talking about that in the next bit. So when we think about which medications of these six single tablets to include, you know, each has important factors to consider, such as things like food requirements and drug-drug interactions. And for example, also single tablet regimens containing rolpivirine aren't recommended for patients with a viral load over 100,000 or a CD4 count less than 200. And in addition, there are certain drug-drug interactions to think about. For example, ropivirine is not recommended to be given with proton pump inhibitors like omeprazole. And in patients in whom you're considering a back of ear, they must be tested for an HLA-B5701, and that must be negative prior to use. The switching to a single-tablet regimen containing TAF, even for patients stable on their current regimens, that was the focus of the Mills study that you reviewed in your newsletter issue. Take a moment, if you would please, to briefly review that for us. So Mills and colleagues conducted a randomized controlled trial for patients who were well-controlled on their current regimen to switch to a single-tablet regimen containing L-vitegravir, cobacystat, m and TAF. And so they recruited about 1,400 patients from a number of Gilead trials of TDF-containing regimens. So those participants had an estimated GFR that was greater than 50. They'd had viral loads of less than 50 copies on their current regimen for at least 96 weeks. And Mills and colleagues looked at virological control, which they defined as a viral load of less than 50 copies of 48 weeks. So just over 950 participants were switched to the single tablet regimen, and 97% achieved a viral load of less than 50 copies of 48 weeks, compared to 93% in the TDF continuation group. So these results indicate that the group that switched to TAF was non-inferior to continuing the TDF-containing regimen. And in the switch to the single tablet regimen containing TAF, there were better bone and renal biomarkers. The mean bone mineral density of the spine and hip increased from baseline in the TAF group, while the bone density decreased or stayed the same in the TDF group. And in addition, the GFR in the TAF group increased, while in the TDF group, the GFR either decreased or stayed the same. And proteinuria was also significantly less in the TAF group. And both regimens were well tolerated, whether you switched to the TAF-containing single tablet or if you continued on the TDF regimen. Because this study, the follow-up was on the order of 48 weeks, they did not see any clinical outcomes of fragility, fractures, or proximal tubulopathy. 
So this study can help us discuss with the patient the opportunity to switch to a single tablet regimen. Switching from TDF to TAF, uh, is that something you'd recommend for the patient you presented? I would discuss these results with the patient and suggest that we switch to the single tablet regimen containing L-vitegravir, cobacistat, emtricitabine, and TAF. He would be on fewer tablets, as he desires, and potentially would have lower risk of kidney issues. But clinical endpoints such as chronic kidney disease and fragility fractures are rare events, so we'll need additional longitudinal observational studies to really evaluate these outcomes in patients who switch to TAF-based regimens. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Rachel Simmons from Boston University School of Medicine in just a moment. You've been listening to EHIV Review, a combination newsletter and podcast program delivered via email to subscribers. Newsletters are published every other month. In each issue, an expert author reviews the current literature in an area of specific importance to clinicians treating patients with HIV, including infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and others. In the month following each newsletter, the expert author provides a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you're listening to now, to help translate that new information into clinical practice. These podcasts are also available as downloadable transcripts. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Subscription to EHIV Review is provided without charge or prerequisite. For more information about this educational activity, to subscribe and receive EHIV Review newsletters and podcasts without charge, and to access back issues, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this EHIV Review podcast. We've been talking with Dr. Rachel Simmons from Boston University School of Medicine about recent research that may improve clinicians' ability to more effectively and more safely manage their patients with HIV infection. So to continue in that clinical vein, doctor, let me ask you to bring us another patient scenario. So our patient is a 37-year-old HIV-positive woman who is a single mother with two children and working full-time who has struggled with medication adherence. While being treated with efavirenz, TDS, emtricitabine, she developed reverse transcriptase mutations, K65R, M184V, and K103N. She started going to a local support group for HIV-positive women and optimized her system for taking medications, and her adherence has greatly improved. She is currently on atravirine twice daily, darunavir-ritonavir twice daily, and raltegravir twice daily. Her viral load has been less than 20 copies per milliliter for six months. Her past medical history is HIV, her exposure was heterosexual sex, and she was diagnosed at a prenatal visit. Her medications are the atravirine twice daily, darunavir-ritonavir twice daily, and raltegravir twice daily. Her physical examination is normal, and her labs include a creatinine of 0.8 and an estimated GFR of 88 mils per minute. Her resistance mutations, how would you interpret them? So when she was failing her initial regimen, her HIV genotype showed the K103N, the K65R, and the M184V mutations. The first letter is generally the code for the amino acid in what we would consider a wild-type HIV virus, and the number identifies the position of that codon, and then the second letter is the letter that identifies what that amino acid has changed to in the new sample. And then with certain changes in the HIV virus, they can confer significant resistance to different HIV medications. And so some very helpful resources that you can use to interpret HIV genotypes are the Stanford University HIV Drug Resistance Database, where you can plug in a patient's 
individual drug resistance mutations and get an interpretation. And in addition, the IAS-USA Drug Resistance Mutations Group also compiles and publishes a list of mutations associated with clinical resistance. These two references can be very helpful in interpreting an HIV genotype. So this particular patient, the M184V mutation that causes high-level resistance to the M-tricytobine component of her regimen, the K65R mutation confers intermediate to high-level resistance to the TDF component, and the K103N is a drug resistance mutation that confers high-level resistance to NNRTIs, particularly efavirenz. And so what unfortunately happened with this patient is that she developed resistance to all three elements of her initial antiretroviral regimen. And therefore, she's on a more complicated regimen that involves four tablets twice a day. So that's how her regimen got so complicated. What can you do now to simplify it? Fortunately, there is a switch study that we can evaluate that might give us an option for a simpler regimen. So Hun and colleagues conducted an open-label, multi-center, non-inferiority trial of switching to L-vitagravir, cobacistat, emtricitabine, and TDF plus darunavir, so two tablets, versus continuing current antiretroviral therapy in patients who were well-controlled on their regimen but who had significant resistance in their background. So the participants were virologically suppressed for at least four months on a darunavir-containing regimen, and they had previously failed at least two regimens with a resistance to two or more classes of antiretrovirals. So these were fairly significant treatment-experienced patients. And they were allowed to have certain resistance mutations on their genotype. So on prior genotypes, the resistance mutations that were permitted included a K65R and up to three thymidine analog mutations. There were several resistance mutations, though, that excluded you from the study. So patients were not allowed to have any integrase strand transfer inhibitor mutations. They were not allowed to have a Q151M mutation or a T69 insertion mutation, or any darunavir-associated mutations. So they took 89 participants and randomized that group to the combination of the single tablet plus darunavir, and then they had 46 patients continue their current regimen. The study population included roughly three-quarters were men, and half their participants were white, and at baseline, the median number of tablets per day were five. And the most common mutations were similar to our patients, and the two most common mutations included an M184V and a K103N. And at 24 weeks, they found that a significant number of patients had good virological control. So 96.6% of patients in the switch group had virological control, and 91% of patients in the continuation group had maintained virological control, thus indicating that the switch group who were on the simpler regimen was non-inferior to continuing the current antiretroviral therapy. And then when they looked again at 48 weeks, again, the group on L-vitegravir, cobacistat, emtricitabine, and TAF plus darunavir, again, met the predetermined criteria for non-inferiority. And in fact, at that point, reached the criteria for superiority with 94% in the switch group achieving virological success compared to 76% in the continuation group achieving virological success. And fortunately, in the switched group, there were no individuals that developed confirmed virologic rebound or had to discontinue the therapy due to adverse events. And this simplified regimen is one that I would consider switching her to and would discuss with the patient. What about the safety profile of this simplified regimen? So this newer regimen was well tolerated. They also looked at the change in EGFR during the study, and that was similar in both groups. However, the switch group had a significant decline in the level of proteinuria 
compared to the continuation group. So similar to the prior study we discussed where patients were placed on a TAF-based regimen, the level of proteinuria went down. How did that simplified TAF-based regimen affect patient satisfaction? So the switch group had significantly higher improvements in patient mean satisfaction, and there were fewer missed doses. So I think this study highlights a simplification of complex regimen to newer fixed-dose combination tablets plus a protease inhibitor is safe and effective in certain individuals who were well-controlled on their salvage regimen. And so for our patient, what this would mean is that she's initially on four tablets twice a day, and if we switch to the regimen described in this study, it would reduce her number of tablets to two tablets once daily. Well, thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. I think we've got time for one more patient scenario, so if you would, please. Our patient is a 25-year-old man with HIV on TDF-M tricytabine plus dolutegravir started three years ago. He's been doing well on his medication, though he expresses frustration with taking medications every day and needing to do so indefinitely. His past medical history is notable for HIV, and his physical examination is normal. His labs include a creatinine of 1.1 and an estimated GFR of 92 mils per minute, and his HIV RNA is less than 50 copies per mil for over a year. Now, here's a patient who's doing well on his current regimen. Would you consider changing his meds to include TAF, and and why might you do that? I would consider changing this patient's regimen, and we have a recent open-label switch study to help us think about that. So, Gallant and colleagues evaluated substituting TDF to TAF while maintaining the rest of an HIV treatment regimen in patients who were doing well on their current antiretroviral therapy. So in this non-inferiority trial, 668 patients were randomized to continue TDF or to switch to a TAF-based regimen while remaining on their remaining components. All of the participants had a viral load of less than 50 copies per mil for at least six months prior to entering the study. And at 48 weeks, they found that the TAF group had similar rates of virological success compared to the TDF group with 94% and 93% with a HIV RNA of less than 50 in the switch group versus the continuation group, respectively. And there were some upsides to the switch. And regarding bone health, the bone mineral density increased from baseline in the TAF switch group, where it decreased or remained the same in the TDF group. And the participants in the TAF group had a small but statistically significant improvement in GFR, and they had a reduction in the amount of proteinuria compared to the TDF group. And like the similar switch study we discussed earlier, both drugs were well-tolerated, and the rates of adverse events were similar. This study highlights that switching from TDF to TAF, that they're both similarly efficacious, and that switching doesn't compromise the high level of virological control that can be achieved with TDF. So I would discuss switching with our patients. There were upsides shown to switching at 48 weeks. Are there any studies that followed switch patients for a longer period? Yes, they've published longer-term follow-up at 96 weeks which also showed that the TAF regimen was not inferior to the TDF regimen. So, for potential benefits in bone density and kidney function, you'd consider switching TDF to TAF. Are there any situations where you would not switch from TDF to TAF? So, for the group of drugs called the rifamycins, those can potentially reduce the level of TAF, so co-administration is not recommended. For example, if a patient needed to take rifampin for a mycobacterial infection in addition to being treated for HIV, I would not recommend using TAF in that situation. Also, co-administration of TAF with topranavir is not recommended. The HIV guidelines, as well as many pharmacy resources, have this helpful information about drug-drug interactions. In addition, at this time, there's limited data about the use of TAF in pregnancy. 
The patient you presented, like many if not most patients with chronic conditions, wants to get away from the hassle of daily dosing. Talk to us about potential newer treatments that would eliminate the need for a daily tablet. So the results of the LATTE-2 trial were recently published, which was a non-inferiority trial of using two long-term injectable medications as maintenance therapy for HIV. Margolis and colleagues conducted a study with two novel long-acting antiretrovirals, cabotegravir and ropivirine. So cabotegravir is an integrase strand transfer inhibitor and is an analog to dolutegravir. The study involved treatment-naive adults with CD4 counts greater than 200. They were treated with an initiation phase of oral abacavir and lamivudine and cabotegravir for about 20 weeks. And then if they had maintained virological control, they were transitioned to either intramuscular injections every four or eight weeks of long-acting cabotegravir and long-acting ropivirine, or they continued on the oral regimen. The study population was 92% men and 15% were black. And the average baseline viral load was about 4.4 log copies per mil, and roughly 18% had viral loads exceeding 100,000 copies per mil. So they had 230 participants that were randomized through the long-acting injectable medications every four weeks or every eight weeks, and 56 were randomized to the continuing their oral medications. And at 32 weeks, the proportion of patients with an HIV viral load of less than 50 copies per mil was 94% in the four-week injectable group and 95% in the eight-week injectable group and 91% in the oral treatment group. So there was no significant difference in virological control among the groups indicating that the long-acting injectables were non-inferior to continuing the oral regimen. And in fact, at 96 weeks, they also found that the regimens were similar in the rates of virological success. All three treatment groups reported a high degree of satisfaction with their treatment regimens. However, when individuals were asked if they were highly satisfied to continue their regimen, 99% of patients in both the long-acting regimens said yes, and only 78% in the oral therapy group said that they were highly satisfied to continue. So this study is a very intriguing Phase two study that raises the possibility of using long-acting injectable medications for HIV maintenance therapy. So these formulations are not FDA approved and additional treatment studies are ongoing at this time, including a phase three study of looking at giving this injectable long-acting regimen for treatment of HIV patients who are treatment naive and a phase three trial of switching to long-acting cabotegravir and long-acting ropivirine from a variety of three drug regimens. So I would suggest to both our listeners and to this patient to stay tuned. Well, thank you for your insights into today's cases, doctor. Let's wrap things up by reviewing our discussion in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, recognizing the risk factors for the development of chronic kidney disease in patients on ART. So there are several risk factors, and these include your HIV exposure risk group being intravenous drug use, hepatitis C co-infection, increasing age, female gender, a low nadir CD4 count of less than 200, and then other coexisting conditions, including hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. And even though this was not addressed in the study we discussed, African-American race or African descent has also been shown to be a risk factor for chronic kidney disease in patients with HIV. There was also a clinical risk tool that was developed to estimate the risk of CKD over five years. This tool is available online, and you can plug in the information for your own patients to customize your care. And our second learning objective, the benefits, risks, and the rationale for switching from TDF to TAF in well-controlled and treatment-experienced patients. So TAF is a newer prodrug of tenofovir with lower plasma levels, and it seems to have less effect on bones and kidneys. 
And so for patients who switch from a regimen containing TDS to TAF, they experience similar excellent virological control and seem to have better both bone and renal parameters. And a second study we discussed also showed that in patients who are highly treatment experienced with certain drug mutations, they can be transitioned to a simpler regimen containing TAF. I would not recommend switching to TAF if the patient needs to take erythromycin for a second type of infection. In addition, there's limited data available for TAF in pregnancy. And our final learning objective, novel long-acting therapies for HIV. So there's been a recent study of long-acting therapies for HIV, which is very intriguing. This study looked at giving cabotegravir and rilpivirine via injection either every four weeks or eight weeks. And they found that patients were able to maintain excellent virological success for maintenance therapy with this regimen. And for the individuals in the study, they expressed a high degree of patient satisfaction on this long-acting injectable regimen. We will all have to stay tuned for future results regarding these long-acting therapies. Dr. Rachel Simmons from Boston University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this EHIV Review podcast. It was a great pleasure. Thank you very much. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ehivreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME credit. EHIV Review is emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with HIV, including infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and others. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive EHIV Review via email, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Vive Healthcare. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Thank you for listening.